Welcome to a special edition of TWG Live. It's special because Lucy is unfortunately not here, and so I have to host. But luckily, making up for that drop-down in quality is a rise in quality with Robbie Cornthwaite joining me. Thank you so much, Robbie, for joining me. My pleasure, mate. First time on the show, so I'm excited to be here. Obviously disappointed Lucy's not here to join us, of course, but uh, I'm, uh, I'm in capable hands, I know that. Yes, uh, don't fear everyone who's a fan of Lucy. Uh, she's just on a break. She'll be back next week. She's having a well-deserved break. She's interviewed about 350 people in Australian football in the last three weeks. So she needs a break um, and it's well-deserved. But we have a lot to talk about on today's show. We want you to get in your comments and your questions and your emojis and all the likes and all that stuff. Let us know where you're watching. That's always really cool to find out. And uh, we will do our best to get to you. But first, obviously, the kind of the biggest story in the world right now is uh, all the protests that are happening around the world, the kind of Black Lives Matter movement. We're not going to talk so much about the specifics of the case or, or, or the protests or anything like that. We're going to look at it more from a football perspective because that's what I think, uh, you know, I think there's many people who can talk about that and, and they'd have much more educated views on that uh, rather than myself, for example. So go seek out them if you want them. What we're going to talk about is it in a football context. And as we have seen uh, all over the world, we've seen clubs, players, post on social media we've seen uh, marcus turam take a knee uh, Jaden sancho whipped off a, a shirt kind of saying uh, justice for george floyd who was the man killed uh, in minneapolis uh what i wanted to know from you robbie is how much is kind of politics discussed uh, amongst football players and in the dressing room? Because I think sometimes, you know, it, it can be a lot to put on. We, we sometimes wonder, oh, why aren't players speaking out about a certain issue? But I think it's, it's sometimes it is a lot for players to, you know, we don't know how informed players are, how much they're keeping up with the news. What has been your experience in the past? Uh, I suppose it's it's a much like the general public. I mean, um, you've got some players that are, are really, really interested in that sort of thing, uh, the legislative uh, things with the government or, or in football. And then you've got some guys um, that are not interested at all. But certainly it is a conversation that, that does take place. Um, it's probably a hot topic. Uh, you know, if the players were at training right now, I'm sure it would be a hot topic and, and, and something that is discussed. But, you know, it's just a shame that, uh, you know, if someone's lost their life and, and to see things get to this point and, you mentioned about football clubs and, and what they are, are sort of doing now. We've seen Liverpool um, taking a knee at Anfield, I think it was. I think Chelsea's come out and, and done something, which is great. Um, and I do feel like maybe a lot of clubs now feel that they have to do it um, because if you're that one club that's not doing it, you know, maybe some questions will be asked. I just hope that everything that's going on, we do see some change, um, whether that's just at a... Uh, sort of, you know, a ground level, people on the street are just being nicer to each other and, um, and treating one, one another quite, you know, equally as they should. Um, but you sort of hope that, you know, football clubs do these sort of things when it, there isn't a spotlight on them. And um, we've seen in the past in the Premier League, Chelsea uh, is one that comes to mind that has had some racism uh, incidents with the fans. Um, haven't always handled it really well. Um, I know there was Liverpool with uh, Luis Suarez as well. So, we do have some some issues in world football in racism. Um, have they been de dealt with well? Probably not. Uh, but we can see that it is a global issue. And again, like you said, I'm, I'm no expert on these matters. Um, I don't want to say anything that's going to offend anyone. But certainly it is something that is discussed uh, in the dressing rooms. 
Yeah, okay. I think that's really interesting because, yeah, you do sometimes see uh, players kind of even get in trouble for liking things on Instagram or, or Twitter or whatever. And I don't know, it's quite interesting. Even you talk about uh, clubs feeling the need to be involved. I was really interested to see, for example, that um, Arsenal released a statement, but, for example, when uh, Mesut Ozil uh, came out and was critical yeah. of China and their policy with the Uyghurs, and again, I'm not an issue. I'm not an expert on any of these issues. I have, I'm not saying who's right, who's wrong. But it was interesting that Arsenal said, listen, we don't get involved in politics or that. Yeah. And now, obviously, they are. So I think the tide I mean, is, is turning. It, is it just a case of, you know, what's popular and what's going to give them a lot of credibility? Is that is that the, is that the case? Who knows? Maybe these are things that they strongly believe in versus things that they don't. But certainly, they don't want to go and uh, alienate and sort of um, offend a large percentage of their, of their supporter base. I saw West Brom did a tweet and someone wrote, well, take away my season ticket because I don't believe in this. And they said, fine, see you later. So they're willing to lose fans um, sort of stating their opinion. But, you know, it is, it is dangerous ground that they walk on. How much of a, a political opinion do you want to have? Yeah. And, you know, it's an interesting uh, point you raise and uh, people watching via Facebook, let us know your thoughts. Uh, Tanya Davis says we've been tackling racism in football anyway. Clubs should be supporting what's going on anyway. I think it's an interesting point there. But I, I sometimes wonder with this and, you know, I've been talking to my friends a bit about it. I'll just say I supported what, uh, you know, Sancho and, and Turam did. But sometimes I wonder you have to judge it because for example, FIFA has regulations about you're not able to do political protests as a player. Yep. Sometimes I think, well, yeah, of course, when you support the, what they're saying that you'll support them. Yeah. What about when you don't? And I think that's sometimes what we have to consider because if a player was to protest in some way that I personally didn't agree with, then am I still saying, oh, it's okay for players to protest or not? So I think it's a, it's a tough balance between if you say it's okay for players to protest. Yeah it has to be okay for them to protest a whole range of issues, even if we yeah. don't agree. I mean, at the end of the day, they don't want players to bring uh, disrepute to the game and bring the game into turmoil. So if it is a view that, uh, uh, you know, someone doesn't agree with and it causes issues amongst the club and, and they're not going to agree with that. So I, I do, I understand the club's point of views, but it, it also shouldn't be something that sort of just makes it's popular and, and that everyone sort of goes along with, because that's the easiest thing to, uh, to be political about the one that everyone agrees. This topic that we're talking about now, I'm sure there's a large percentage of people out there that don't agree with, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and all this kind of thing that's going on. So it is very tricky ground. Um, when I was in South Korea, the South Koreans went to the 2012 Olympics. They won a bronze medal. And from memory, one of the players uh, had a, either a poster or a T-shirt, which was sort of a political statement against Japan. And he wasn't allowed to accept his medal in the end. So they, they really stamped down on that. Um, and again, uh, I don't want to get too deeply into it, but, um, you know, at the end of the day, unfortunately, someone's lost their life and, um, you know, let's hope we can see some change from, from everything that's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, we're talking about, are these issues discussed in the change room? What would surprise people about what is discussed in the change room? Because I think sometimes, you know, we'll, we like to think footballers are, you know, the, the stereotype is they're not the smartest or, you know, there's not, but I don't know, the, the footballers I've talked to seem pretty smart and we talk to them after they finish their careers a lot. So what are some of the conversations where you'd be like, oh, wow, this is pretty interesting for a dressing room conversation or maybe on an away trip or something like that? I mean, you, you spend so much time together. Um, you sort of discuss everything. As I said before, it's much like the general population. There, there is sort of uh, 
I wouldn't say clicks because that's always taken negatively, but there is groups that are within a team. You quite often have a lot of the young boys and talking about one thing and, and the older guys might be talking about family or, you know, um, the way the game's being run. And I think family is probably an overriding topic. Uh, the older players talking about their kids and, you know, when kids are going to school and, and illness and, and all these types of things. Um, you know, we mentioned politics. I wouldn't say politics is a huge talking point, but it's pretty much everything, to be honest. It's a very, very broad range of things. And there's guys that are studying, quite a large number of players study now. Um, a lot of them are studying in that fitness uh, industry. But, um, you know, Zach Anderson, for instance, was studying law. I think he's still studying law. And he, he owns a couple of businesses in Singapore as well. So getting to speak about that and, and learning about that, it, it really is a, a, a broad range of things. And and as people would suspect, and, and you know, we talk about PlayStation, we talk about music, obviously... Uh, girls are discussed and girlfriends and all these types of things. It's, it really is everything that is discussed. Yeah. And I think that's pretty normal for people that age as well. Like yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm 27 now and that's a lot of what discussed between uh, me and my friends. A league meme says, wait, Lucy's not here. Would have been perfect time to invite Ned. Uh, listen, one Zelich is out. We can't replace them directly with a Zelich this week. So who knows? Maybe in the future we will see. But getting your comments, getting your questions. Uh, we've got the great Robbie Cornthwaite here. Uh, he's been so kind enough to join us. He's going to tell us about his podcast uh, that he's released soon. But you were just talking there, Robbie, about you know, what gets discussed in the dressing room and the state of the game. I would imagine right now there would be a big, big discussion happening because of so much is going on. And, you know, the A-League players, from what we've seen, the little snippets that we've seen from them, they seem quite uh, frustrated at the current situation, which has involved them taking a big pay cut. We don't know where this hub is going to be, but they're going to have to go play in a hub for yep. a month or so. And then we don't even necessarily know how the broadcasting is going to work and all that so yeah. what are your thoughts uh, around all that i mean first of all from a player's point of view let me tell you now the players are not happy with this pay deal whatsoever um my understanding is uh, i mean initially i thought maybe it was a confidentiality thing where everyone got to have a vote yes or no whether they agree or not my understanding is now that it was much more a group conversation uh, a big zoom sort of call with every player online with pfa uh, i'm not sure if there was ffa um, people involved but it was basically just an open discussion and I don't think at any point people got to raise their hand and say I vote yes or I vote no I think it was basically it wasn't forced upon them but they, they didn't really have any other option it was like this is the deal or, or don't play and I'm positive there was a number of players that don't want this deal they're not happy with this deal but they don't feel like they've got any other option whatsoever if they don't take this deal let's be honest they're probably not going to play uh, and, the, and the end of the season is not going to go ahead. So their arm was kind of tied, their hands were kind of tied behind their back. They've agreed to that. And um, they've kind of agreed to a deal without actually knowing whether they can still play. Because as you mentioned, the, the TV rights deal, the broadcast deal is still up in the air. Um, they're under the impression that once this coronavirus is sort of over and, and the job keepers over and all that, they should be going back to 100% of their pay. Uh, that That's what their contract says. But Again, with the broadcast deal, if the players and the clubs can't afford them, um, then th that's going to change as well. Um, and with this hub idea, I think that probably sits okay with with most of them. Um, obviously, if they've got young families or or newborns or, or, or a wife that's pregnant, that could make things difficult. Um, but this pay dispute is, is the big one. I actually know for a fact there's a couple of players that are still saying, unless they get 100% of their money, they're not going to play. 
Yeah. And you know what, in a, in a way, I think it's fair enough because this is an insane situation. And I, I can tell you like in any other uh, workforce, if they just said you have to take a huge pay cut, there's no guarantee of what's going to happen in the future. A lot of people would not do it. A lot of people would go on strike. You're also looking at, you know, a lot of players are in different situations. You have young players who say, for example, they don't have a family, they yeah. don't have a mortgage or anything, and they just want to get out there, just want to prove themselves. But then you have, you know, players who do have families, they have bills to pay, mortgages, all this kind of stuff. And let's be honest, some some players, some older players, some foreign players are just here for the money. That's what yeah. they, it's a job and that's fair enough to them. So why are they going to play at such a reduced wage? On top of that, we have some of the problems with the, the foreign players here. A lot of the uh, players are on JobKeeper payments, which are yeah. only available to Australian citizens. So I, there was a report uh, the other day that players are being paid uh, by the PFA partly. Money's been sent from uh, their home countries back to them. Yeah. I mean, do you think this could possibly damage... Uh, our ability to attract foreigners in the future? Well, I think this whole coronavirus um, crisis is, is, has sort of made that difficult anyway. I think people are going to be reluctant to leave their home country and go over and see them play. We hear, you know, Toivonen looks as though he's going back home and, you know, Adelaide's uh, Michael Maria's not in the country at the moment. I don't know whether he's going to come back or not, but um, yeah, it certainly does make things difficult. We have this vision of footballers being rich and having all these bags of money in their you know, under their mattress or something like that. But you can see some of these foreign players are not been on getting paid for two or three months and they need to borrow money. They need to get money from somewhere and, and you can understand that they're desperate. So it is difficult times. Um, the government legislation as well is sort of tied into it as well because for as long as the job, job keepers around, A-League clubs can, can, can keep players on job keepers. So once the new season does start or if it does start, the club can basically choose, okay, we're going to give player A his full salary and we're going to keep player B on JobKeeper because we can't afford to play them both. So, you know, and then players might might leave because they'll say, well, I want my full money or, or I'm going to go. So it's really, really going to be a, an interesting time, a difficult time. I'm, I'm sort of glad I'm not involved in the administration of the game, if I'm, if I'm honest, um, because it is a real mess at the moment. Yeah, it's a brutal time. Were you ever in your career involved in kind of pay disputes and stuff? We've seen in the past, you know, kind of more national teams go on strike. Matildas went on strike, I think, around 2015. I think the Socceroos went on strike previously um, under Ange for a little bit. Uh, Were you ever involved in any of that? How is it discussed? What's the process like? No, I wasn't, to be honest. Um, I think much of those um, sort of strike threats in Australian football took part when I was away overseas. I know the Wanderers as well with the Asian Champions League run um, had, had some disputes. Um, but I've played in, in Malaysia, which is a country that um, certain clubs are renowned for not paying or not paying on time. And I've seen how difficult it can be uh, for guys not getting their money and, and obviously having to go for FIFA and, and everything. That's a, that's a separate separate topic but I think the ultimate thing that usually happens with player strikes um, or players threatening to strike is that players have power where it's you know the game is either you know you look to America NBA and, and all these things the game is massive people want to see the game there's so much money involved um, that the players have the power and say well if we don't play, play you don't have a product unfortunately at the moment the A-League and, and with the coronavirus stuff it's in a weak position where if the players say we don't want to play, we refuse to play. There's a chance that people will say, okay, no worries. Don't worry. See you later. Contracts broken. So there is a lot of um, different elements to this. 
Um, and certainly there's conversations around at the moment, which is the best way forward for the A-League in a, in a TV broadcast deal, whether it's free-to-air, Foxtel, uh, a streaming service of their own, producing their own games. And at the end of the day, it always just comes back to, to money. So we've got some successful businessmen involved in the A-League. You know, you've got Paul Lederer at the Wanderers. Um, you've got really smart guys in Perth and Adelaide. And these, these guys have probably lost a lot of money in other business deals. So it's not to say that they're not going to lose money in the A-League and, and it's all going to, you know, they're going to walk away or something like that. But let's hope they know what they're doing and um, they can play hardball or they can move the game into another direction. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, speaking of, you just mentioned a uh, possible a streaming service. There was a story kind of coming out this week about, uh, I think, the Golden Generation, which is this group mm. of kind of uh, retired footballers from the Socceroos 06 generation. They put forward this idea of owning, you know, the A-League product and having a kind of FFA TV streaming service. Yep. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think it could work? Do you think it would be a good move for the game? Oh, listen, it could be. Um, I don't have the answer. Um, you know, Foxtel's done a wonderful job um, over, the, over the 15 years. It's, it's promoted the game extremely well. Whether it's time to break, I don't know. Again, that's for someone on a bigger payroll than, uh, than me. But, you know, it could work. I think the thing to tap into is, this, um, is the participation numbers, the, the fees that have to be paid in, in Australian football, you know. If we're able to put a, a streaming service fee in there and get access to two million people access um, and get the funds, because to run the, I think it's about sixty to eighty thousand dollars to produce one game. If you do that across an A League season, uh, you know my maths ain't the best, but it's probably about fifteen million dollars. Um, to be able to recoup that money just purely on a production side, you know that's going to be the challenge. Where does that come from? I suppose. Yeah. And you know what? Uh, Facebook has let us know your thoughts because I'd be very interested to see how many people would actually pay for an A-League kind of streaming service. Because if you, if you, there was a comparison to Netflix, I think Netflix yeah. is about $12, $13 a yeah. month, right? So, I, you know, some kind of, if you looked at the math, you'd say, okay, how much would, how much would you be willing to pay per month to say, yeah. watch your A-League team or watch all the games and how would that break down? Would there be enough people? Because we know that, you know, the TV ratings have declined a bit, and yep. I think the average you're averaging around fifty, sixty thousand uh, for the kind of the games this season for Fox. And you know, I don't think fifty, sixty thousand paying fifteen dollars a month is going to be enough to get it over the line. And and then yeah, the production costs and and how it's all done and and paying people to do it on top of the salary and stuff. So I think it's really difficult. But I would like to hear from people. Uh, how much they're willing to pay for uh, such a streaming service and, and let us know is it something you'd be interested in because ideally if it was to work out it would be fantastic you know if you could watch every A-League game in this kind of perfect one place I think it'd be fantastic I for example watch a bunch of NBA League Pass and I think it's a great yeah. service that's available outside I've, of America well I think that I think the beauty of having your own streaming service as well is to produce your own content I mean content ultimately is is huge I mean and if we're relying um, you know I work for Channel 7 here in Adelaide and and I do push a lot of A-League stuff and, and I must say they do show a lot of A-League stuff here uh, locally um, and that's not all down to me that we've got a wonderful team there but if you're able to produce your own content, your own features like Optus do, um, you know, that, that really grows a, a sort of a base and grows traction. You draw more people in because of that as well. Um, and then that leads to more people watching your game. So there's, there's a few different avenues to, uh, to promote it, I suppose. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, there's an interesting thing about you talk about 
uh, earning your own content. It's the stories as well, because sometimes I think if you're someone like Fox Sports, and like you said, they've done a great job, but it can be hard when Fox Sports is focusing on all the different sports yep. to really find these great stories underneath the surface. And I think, yep. you know, you're seeing right now the amount of sports documentaries that people are watching right now. Mm. And I, like I was watching Sunderland Till I Die the other day. Oh, yeah, I and it, I was yeah. suddenly invested in this team, Sunderland. <laughs> I don't support them. I don't care about them at all. Yeah. But I was like, oh, come on. I hope they get the goal. Yeah. Oh, once you know the story and the people yeah. behind it, you really can really start to feel well, emotionally Even, even just the fact that, you know, I'd like to think I know a lot about English football and I watch, I didn't realize how big a club they were. Oh, no. Like, no. I was shocked. I was like, oh, Sunderland are, are huge. Like, their following is ridiculous. Their stadium, their facilities, you know, all the money they've invested. I'm like, wow, they're, they're actually a big club. What are they doing down there in League One? So, yeah, it's great to see that inside and um, hopefully we can see some more of that at the A-League in the future. Yeah, it is uh, certainly a crazy time. Let us know, would you pay for a FFA TV kind of thing? If we're thinking 15, 20 bucks a month, how much would you be willing to pay? Would you be willing to pay more? Um, let us know. Anyway, uh, one story uh, that's kind of doing the rounds at the moment <coughs> is, oh, no worries, is Western <laughs> United getting sued over allegedly uh, Mark Rudin. You've given me all the good topics that I haven't you? I've got to like <laughs> walk on eggshells with everything I say. <laughs> we will have to walk on eggshells egg for this one. But uh, yes, Western United's former team manager is suing the club for $120,000. This is a story in our uh, Fairfax papers claiming he was left with a mental illness after allegedly bullying by coach Mark Ritter. So uh, the club has denied the allegations and we should say, you know, that's just what they are at the moment. And we, we don't know what's happened. And But w- I guess rather than talking about the specific allegations, because we weren't there and we can't really comment on that, I just wanted to talk about, I'll just say some of the things that uh, he's alleged to have done, which again, uh, Western United do deny it, um, is alleged that Rudin forced him to clean his dirty clothes and bed sheets, among other directions, to perform tasks outside of his job description, such as buying him groceries uh, and also made him uh, pack Rudin's belongings from a hotel room on an away trip. Uh, what I wanted to know from you, Robbie, does this sound like out of the ordinary for a team manager? Does this, um, cause I guess this is the thing is if so many of us have never played professionally, so we don't know what mm. it's like. And we know it's not exactly like a, the same working environment as it is for people who work in an office or people who yeah. work on a job site or whatever. So w- when you heard those allegations and you heard those allegations, did you, did that sound like it was out of the ordinary for a football team? Um, I mean, there is, I don't, I don't know. Every, uh, I suppose everyone's job description is going to be different. If you're a team manager at one team, you might have less or more responsibilities versus another one. I mean, um, I do think there is times that people do do things that are outside of their job uh, scope. I remember calling a, a team manager from Adelaide United once to get me on a door list for a nightclub. So I don't think that was in his, uh, <laughs> I don't think that was in his job description, but he was happy to do it for me. But I mean, the second point you make is um, are things in a football team and in a dressing room and and that different from a normal workplace? I'd have to say 100%. I mean, there was things that I saw, particularly overseas. I've spoken about it before with a coach basically punching a player in the face and it was 100% okay. No one cared. The player pretty much didn't care. I'm sure he was annoyed and he wasn't too happy about it. Didn't go to the union, didn't go to his agent. It was all fine. Next day, hugs and kisses. Everything's great. But um, you know, you couldn't sit. You wouldn't expect to see that in a normal workplace. I can't say for certain because I haven't worked on a building site or I haven't worked in a factory and all these types of things. But um, I think some of the language um, 
for instance, in, in a dressing room, it's not uncommon for a, a coach or a, an older player or anyone to, to tell another player that he's, that he's shit. You know what I mean? I, I'm sure if you did that in an office, there could be problems. Um, I mean, you know I mean, I mean? This, this is it. It's really interesting because I think, uh, you know, sometimes I compare like the way my work life is to, to a yeah. footballer and it's so different. It's so yeah. crazy. Even just a, a simple matter of, you know, you come in at half time, you've got 15 minutes, probably less to sort out the problems. And yeah. so, you know, the coach might, you know, give you a yell at you or it might be really intense discussions. You would rarely have that in an office. You would have yeah. a, a meeting in a, in a week's time to discuss it. When cool heads prevail, you'd mm. have, you know, um, HR come down and tell you how to do it. I think it, it's sometimes hard to look at, you know, how, I guess it's interesting because uh, what this person is alleging, they're suing uh, the club in a workplace kind of law. Um, yeah. Well, it, I mean, I don't, like you say, I don't want to go too much into the, that, uh, that case because I don't know anything about it. Uh, the case is about bullying mm. and the, the instances that you, you rattled off there were, were for me, they weren't, bull you know, can, can you pack my bag? Mm. You know, that just sounds like he's asked him to do something that he doesn't believe he should do. And then maybe that led to bullying. I'm not too sure. But, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting one. Uh, I'm trying to think of specifics that's not going to sound too over the top. or um, But cert certainly like an abusive nature is probably part of a football team. I know young players that, um, you know, might feel like they've been picked on. Or, you know, Mark Rudin's from a different generation too. I know a story... I hope he doesn't mind me telling it, but Brendan Sandlab, when he was 18, 19, he was playing in the NSL. He took a free kick that wasn't his to take. And he was basically picked up and put up against the wall afterwards. You know, so you don't, you don't, you don't hear about those sorts of things really, do you? And, oh. and that was just a learning experience for a young kid. Okay. I'm not going to do that again. And, and you move on. So, I mean, yeah, yeah it is very different. And, and that's the thing I think like, uh, for example, we mythologize, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson's hairdryer treatment. Yeah. I'm telling you, if my manager gave me the hairdryer treatment, like yeah. HR would be called, they would yeah. be reprimanded. It, it's a different world. So yeah. I think it's, a again, we don't want to comment on the specifics. I don't know what's happened. Um, you know, club denies it, but this, this guy alleges it. And I, I do want to say just because it does happen, doesn't make it okay. Yeah. I was a type of player that I actually responded really well to that um, being on edge. I've told my story before about Tony Popovich really, really ripping into me and, and I felt like about two centimetres tall and from there, I just became much, much better. Doesn't work for everyone and in some cases, I'm sure some players would feel like they've been bullied and, 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 and probably, I wouldn't say scared, but you know, very hesitant to go to training or to go and knock on the coach's office or, and all these things and we do know mental health is such a big part of sport from outside pressures, from, from everything and I'm sure again, a culture at a club that's not good could lead to that. So just because it happens doesn't make it right. Uh, but yes, it is a completely different environment to say an office that I've worked in. Did uh, you see it change over your time? So when your career started kind of in the early 2000s to, you know, a few years ago, did you see it change? Obviously we kind of hear about the old days and that it was yeah. more aggressive and it was kind of more cutthroat. What was your experience with that? Yeah, I think certainly when I was a younger player, I had pretty firm uh, older players like Ross Aloisi, Michael Varkanis, um, Carl Viet. And um, yeah, they were pretty hard on me. Uh, you know, you knew at times like at training, they were going to kick the shit out of you just to prove a point or to teach you a lesson. As I got older, you know, I didn't enjoy that. So as I got older, I tended not to do that. 
um, to younger players. You know, you'd pull players into line when you had to, but I wouldn't deliberately go out there to just kick, kick someone just to prove a point like, oh, you know, you nutmeg me, so now I'm going to put you over the fence kind of thing. Don't disrespect me that way. It wasn't something that I really did. Um, and certainly in the locker room, I probably didn't... Um, that sort of rough housing nature where you play pranks on the young, younger guys and stuff. That was never something I really enjoyed receiving. So I never really did it. And um, I tried to make young players feel as comfortable as possible because that's what's going to make them play their best. And ultimately I wanted them to do well. So the team did well. Yeah. And you know, I think it's interesting how I think the really good uh, managers just generally, and they know how to get the best out of people by doing different ways of motivating yeah, some players they'll they'll yell out even you hear about uh, sir alex ferguson you know he gave a lot of players the hairdryer treatment but yep. eric Cantona apparently never got any kind of talking to whatsoever in fact when yeah. eric Cantona was late he'd just go yep no worries eric yeah and that got the best out of uh, well you look, at Dennis, you look at dennis rodman he, he was allowed to go to las vegas for 48 hours because on the court he just delivered now there was players that you had to be on top of all the time because you knew as soon as you took your foot off, they took their foot off. Where there was others, you knew you'd tell them once, that was enough. Because if you told them too many times, they'd go into their shell. So it is a fine line and um, you know sometimes you get it wrong. But um, yeah, as you say, man management, it's a huge part of football. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, let's kind of talk about a little uh, different part of Victoria, which is Melbourne victory. Uh, Carlos Salvatua has left the club, has gone back to Spain. Uh, it's also kind of rumoured, but I think pretty well known at this stage, that Ola Toivonen won't be coming back. He'll be going to Sweden. His contract was up as well. Do you think uh, that it's like delegitimizing the league, the fact that we're losing coaches? Adelaide United doesn't still doesn't have a coach. Uh, you know, you're down there. I don't know if you can tell us how close they are to filling that vacancy. But when we do come back, and hopefully, you know, it's, it's been talked about that it's going to be in July, yep. who's going to be left? And, and what does that say about the competition? Does, have we lost some of the integrity there? Well, the Toivonen one I find a little bit interesting because the fact that he's been stood down for the last two months, hasn't been receiving any pay, not eligible for the job keeper unless he's getting his money somewhere else. The fact that now the league's going ahead and, and now he's left, it's maybe he could have left earlier. Maybe he did. I'm not too sure. But certainly some of the foreign players are going to be um, not be around. I think Perth Glory as well. There was one or two rumoured not to be around. And then what happens with players that have already signed for other clubs? I still haven't heard the answer to that. Um, I know in Adelaide United's case, I think everyone's taken up that extra extension to get this, the season finished. Um, but certainly I think a lot of teams, the makeup will look different. I, I, for one, think there could be a positive from that. You might see a lot of young players that you've never seen before get an opportunity um, through necessity, uh, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, and then in terms of the coaches, Adelaide United, literally two minutes before we jumped on the live, uh, announced that they've got their criteria. Um, they know exactly what they're looking for now. Um, they've spoken to past players, which I did a story about. They spoke to Karuska, Ange Costanzo, and Travis Dodd. Um, they've spoke to members, and obviously they've spoken um, amongst themselves. They've got their criteria. They've just opened up uh, for expressions of interest, so to come forward. Um, but Carl Viet will 99.9% .9 be the interim coach for the remainder of the A-League season when that gets underway. As for Melbourne Victory, listen, I, I don't know. You, John Aloisi's name's been linked to both clubs. Um, it comes with a air of, I'll just be honest, negativity. People are negative towards John, but every player that I have spoken to and uh, sorry, coach that's worked with him say he needs to get another opportunity because he is a very, very good coach. Um, 
originally I was thinking along the lines of maybe it's time for a fresh face like everyone else, maybe a Damian Murray, a Tony Vidmar, Joe Mullen, someone along those lines. Um, but since speaking to these other people and I've spoken to John, he's got to be right in the mix for one of those two jobs. And certainly now with everything that's gone on in the world, I'm not sure how easy it's going to be to attract an overseas coach. What's your budget going to look like? All these sorts of things. So, um, yeah, it's going to be very, very interesting to see what, what ends up happening. Might be another interim. I mean, Carlos was only an interim in, in itself. So are we going to see Melbourne appoint a, a second interim to finish the season? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think it's a good point you make about Aloisi because I've heard the same thing because again, yeah, I, I was a bit like, oh, well, it didn't really work out at hard and then raw. No, I'm expecting I'm expecting your your comments, your live comments to be lighting up now. <laughs> Not Johnny Aloisi again. But yeah, well, you know what? Ange Postacoglu had a nightmare with the Oli Roos and he was apparently a horrendous coach as well. So sometimes yeah. you just need the right place. You see it with players, they go to a club and they can't do it. They go to the next club and they can. So let's um let's let's just let Adelaide United and Melbourne Victory make their choice and then we'll see what happens from there. Uh, Ivan Stragan puts a few names uh, up, I think, for the Victory job. He says John Anastasiadis and Arthur Pappas, uh, yeah. both done well and both from Victoria. So, yep. I, so think, I think Arthur's actually with Ange Postacoglu now, isn't he? Uh, yes. From, from memory. So it would take a lot for him to walk away from that, you would think, that opportunity. And I think I'm quite certain Tony Vidmar is happy with his role with the Socceroos. Might be just a bit of ducks and drakes, who knows? But um, I mean, that's a pretty, it's a pretty good uh, job to have at the moment with the uncertainty around the league. Yeah, and Nadia D Tennis says she loves John Aloisi. So there's support uh, on both sides. Hassan Bertan, what about Paul Ocon? Um, yeah, well, I think another one. But yeah. I think he's in Belgium at the moment uh, okay. with his kid over there. So I don't know how uh, in, how available he is at the moment. But keep your suggestions coming in. Uh, we'd love to hear them. But what, what do you think about you know the Will the league still kind of, will it still be valid, I guess? Yeah. I mean, you hear the AFL had a discussion about, you know, do you have an asterisk next to your, the champion because it's a short season, shortened quarters, all these different things. Listen, the players, if you win a championship, you're going to say you won a championship. And the difficult thing is, uh, you know, say, you know, I'm struggling to remember what the A-League table currently looks like, but say a, a Central Coast Mariners who can't make the finals and, what's their motivation to come back and play four or five games or whatever it is, you know, for 50% of their money, are we going to get a fair competition or the teams that are, have to play against the Mariners and, and the Jets, I think are lower down from memory. Are they going to be up or, or, or the Jets and Mariners is going to use this as an experiment time to play younger players. Who knows what it's going to look like, honestly. Yeah, uh, it's going to be very interesting, but we will keep talking about it and we will keep watching. And we'll keep watching. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I want to talk to you about your career now. Um, you know, you were there in A-League season one and you kind of yep. only retired a few years ago. How do you think the league changed uh, in your perception of, I don't know, the way it was in the media, the way the yep. fans were involved? Was there a change over that time? I think like anything that's been going for 15 years, of course, is going to be changed. I think that initial groundswell of excitement and crowds and everything that uh, that came to the league in those early sort of years was was wonderful and it's and it's peaked and troughed throughout. Um, you know, some of the star names that we've had in the league have been fantastic, and uh, I think I think starting out it was a little bit more certainly from an Adelaide point of view. We were we were a really physical side. I remember we used to have push and shoves and. Uh, scraps almost every week and it was a real real battle um, I think the games for better or worse become a lot more tactical 
Um, and some people maybe will say a lot more stale. You know, for instance, in Malaysia, the tactics are almost out the window and it's end to end. And the, the actual technique of the players and the tactical understanding and the structure is not there. But the entertainment is high because it's like three all and it's big tackles and mistakes and, and everything like that. I think we need to find a balance because sometimes we sort of overcoach our players. Um, you need to have that freedom. And I think in the early days, I think we sort of embraced that a little bit more for players to go out there and, and express themselves. And I think the contact time as well now with the clubs, I know when we we're at the Wanderers, we were there for such a long period. It used to be go there for two hours and you go home. Where with the Wanderers, I might've been there for five hours or, or something like that, which still isn't a full day, don't get me wrong. Um, Why were you guys there so long? Just like physio? Well, we used to get there, do our physio. We used to do our prehab. You had a, your own prehab you had to do for say 15, 20, 30 minutes. Then you had a team prehab that used to go for another 15 or 20 minutes. This is all before you even leave the, the gym. Then you'd have a team meeting, maybe 15 or 20 minutes. You'd be watching highlights. Uh, you with the ball one day, you without the ball one day, the other team set pieces. And then after you might have to do recovery, ice baths, um, sometimes you eat lunch there, massage. So the day would really, really, really be stretched out. Um, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I really enjoyed it. But, you know, we talk about this pay dispute. If players are on 50% less money, can you ask them to have the same time commitments? Um, you know, that's another question. But yeah, there's been a lot of changes. Um, I think physically, it's a lot more difficult. When I came back and played for Western Sydney, the amount of fitness and stamina and, and repeat efforts that were required were a lot, lot higher. Obviously, I was older. Maybe that played a part. But um, yeah, I think physically, it was it was very, very demanding. Do you think, you know, it sounds like it, it's increasingly kind of professionalized and every year they work out and, you know, it's professional sports. So, you know, they're always trying to get that 5% better and that just mm. increase everywhere they can. Yeah. But do you think that it can lead to like overload for players that maybe sometimes there's too much information? I mean, I've even seen like when you watch some of these documentaries and, you know, Pep Guardiola at Manchester City, he's given them 3000 tactical instructions. Mm. To be honest, Leroy Sane was barely listening. Like he was just kind yeah. of, and then he just goes out and razzles. So. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you are, if you do say to a Leroy Sane, um, when you get the ball out, take two touches and, and get rid of it. He's not going to be anywhere near the play he's going to be. There's guys that need to play that type of role. Maybe a defensive midfielder or something like that. Keep the ball moving, whatever. But there's guys that in the right situation, you've got to give them license to go and, and do what they want. And, there was structure to a degree in the front third, um, but it was more about getting the ball there and then making the right decision. There were certain cues that when you saw this is what's going to happen and it was controlled, but obviously that was the best way to score a goal that, that the coaching staff and the players felt because of the way the opposition set up. So there is going to be times you get Brandon Sandalife in the box 1v1. You're not going to say to him, I want you to do this. You're just going to say, mate, go past the guy, do whatever it takes to go past him. Um, but you're right. You can give players a little bit too much instruction because you get to that level by usually just being really good at the basics or scoring a lot of goals. And then when you get there, if you're not really intellectual, you could struggle uh, because like you say, there is a lot of information. Uh, I wanted to ask, so when you finished up your career uh, and then you've now transitioned to media, how is that for you? Because we know that it can be very difficult for a player to retire. And then on top of that, the transition that they have from what they do 
after football can be quite difficult. It could take them a long time. Players suffer with depression and all kinds of things can happen. How has that transitioned for you and, and now working in the media? What's that been like? Oh, listen, I think the transition is good. Um, I'm nowhere near where I want to be in terms of, you know, like in Adelaide, I'm only, I only work a couple of days a week. I ultimately, I'd like to be working four days a week, but it is a very difficult industry. Um, if you told me this is what I'd be doing when I first arrived back a year after I got back from overseas, I would have bitten your hand off. I would have taken it. Um, but like as a player, I just, I just constantly want to be better. So I, I still think there's so many things I need to improve. I mean, I haven't hosted live television for probably two years now. I did that when I was overseas. So that's something that I, I need to try to get back into or, or try to hone. Um, certainly, my English in terms of writing scripts and, and my grammar and all that is, is shocking. Um, but thankfully, when you're on TV, no one reads your script. <laughs> only you read your script. So, so that kind of helps. But listen, I'm just trying to do what I can. I'm on the front foot as much as I can. Like, you know, even today I was at the, the playground with my kid and I'm messaging, you know, people on Twitter from other sports saying, you know, are you interested in telling this story or can you come on my podcast or whatever? I just... I like to just chase a lot of leads and try to make things happen. But um, yeah, I'm happy with where I'm at, but I still feel like I've got a lot, a lot of work to do, but I'm grateful that I do have an opportunity because, you know, we've seen so much over the last, particularly the last six to 12 months, how many people in the media industry have lost their jobs or, or are struggling. So by no means am I resting on my laurels. I know I've got a lot of work to do. And um, yeah, I mean, thankful for SBS and, and, and Foxtel and channel seven and Adelaide, everyone who's given me an opportunity to, to speak. Um, and yeah, we'll just let's see where it takes me. Well, we love having you. Uh, but a question has come in from Tonka Tony. He wants to know yeah. who has been the most tactically prepared manager you have played under. Oh, uh, I, I, let's be honest. I haven't played under like any famous managers, like a, you know, in Europe or anything. But um, Tony Popovich is obviously super, super detailed. I've mentioned it before. Um, I hope people aren't sick of hearing about it, but yeah, he's super on top of everything. Players at the Wanderers all had their own iPad every day. There'd be vision loaded up to the iPad that you would watch at home to be then prepared for the next training session. He didn't have to explain it to you a million times. You already had an idea of what it would be. And, and even just, you know, a video session that would go for half an hour with just maybe the back four or, or the, the four or five center backs. And he would literally pause it and the pixels on the screen were like bigger than the distance that he wanted you to move. Um, and he would say, listen, if you were just like half a, half a foot this way, you would have got that ball. And you're like, it's such a small <laughs> detail, but you're like, oh yeah, you're, you're, you're actually right. You know what I mean? And, and all your body positioning, like he, he would tell the fullbacks to face inwards instead of out. And you watch European football, some of the biggest teams in the world, they face out. And you think, well, why is he telling you face in? And once you do it, it's quicker. You save half a second. And in the end, that, that could save a goal. So even the smallest little details that you see the biggest players in the world doing wrong, he's teaching players at A-League level, this is how it should be done. And it doesn't come as um, naturally because that's not what you've been taught to do your whole career. But once you do it, you're like, you think to yourself, Hang on a second. I think he's right. The problem with Tony for me is like 90% of the time, in my opinion, he was right. Where I've had other coaches where you'd go, oh, uh, I better do it because that's where he's telling me to do, but I'm not really sure that's what I should be doing. So um, yeah, for me, he's the best. And listen, he's got flaws. He's got things he needs to work on. If he wants to go and become a, a manager in Europe, there's plenty of things he'll need to do differently and change. And I think um, 
he, you know, if he has someone that challenges him a little bit more in terms of ideas, uh, he could become a much better idea uh, manager. Yeah, it'd be very interesting to see what happens. We've seen that he's actually been linked to that uh, job with uh, Melbourne Victory. So who knows? He'll go there. But, you know, that detail, that's one of the reasons why he's, I mean, very well done. Good technique there. Uh, Anyone who's not watching this and listening to it, coughed straight into the elbow there. Popovich would have been very happy with that technique. Inch perfect. Um, But yeah, so let's talk about your new podcast because that's uh, one of the things that you're working on. Tell us about that. Tell us about how it came about, uh, what kind of makes it special. And I'm sure many people want to, uh, subscribe to that cool um yeah so in 2016 when i was playing in malaysia my wife gave birth to a daughter premature unfortunately she passed away and sort of from that when i sort of told my story a lot of people sort of messaged me privately saying oh you know i've been through this or this or this and i had other athletes that i, I knew that had, had been through similar um, stories and circumstances and it was for a long time, like this podcast I'm putting out now, I recorded the first episode like six months ago. Um, and it's really just like, oh yeah, this guy's got a story, I'll do that and just sort of evolves. And it got to a point where I was like, well, there's plenty of other stories people want to tell that aren't related to miscarriage or IVF or, or fostering. I know there is an undertone of that, but I just kind of wanted to paint a picture of like whatever you're sort of going through whether it's, uh, you know, I've done one with Andy Brennan that's going to come out soon about, you know, obviously coming out as gay as a footballer. I've got AFL and NBL, uh, had Melissa Barbieri. Just basically, like, there's no playbook for this sort of stuff. Um, and, you know, my line at the end is, like, unlike, unlike sport, there's no playbook for life. So whatever you feel and whatever you, however you want to deal with it, that's fine. People say speak up because that's what helps. Some people don't want to speak. That's fine. And the big thing as well is like in, in grief and in mourning, some people do things where other people might think that's weird, uh, but I might do something. And, and there's no rule. Like whatever makes you happy, makes you feel comfortable, gives you peace, like go, go ahead and do it. So it sort of grew from there. And I thought, you know, I'm, these athletes that I've got on aren't the biggest names. Like they're people some people maybe never heard of. Um, but their stories are just like incredible. And I just think they're, they're, they're stories that need to be shared. And, and even in the first week I've put two pod, you know, two episodes out, I've probably had, I don't know, a dozen people messaging me just saying, Oh, you know, thanks. Or can you let Melissa know that her story helped or all this? And that's what it's about. You know, that's what it's about getting these stories out there, help people. Um, and yeah, just sort of try to try to tell some good stories. I've got one coming up with an NBL player, um, Tim Conrad, uh, who plays for Wollongong Hawks. Um, and his story is just incredible around foster caring children and, and his own battle with the, um, his wife to fall pregnant. And yeah, like I was before the pod doing the pre-interview, I was like basically in tears and, you know, I think I've cried in like four of the pods <laughs> already. So I'm a pretty emotional person. People maybe not know that, but, um, yeah, yeah. It really hits home. So if you get a chance, it's called Life, Death and Sport. Um, it's on Spotify, uh, Apple and, and all over my Twitter and my Instagram. So have a listen, have a subscribe and, and rate. And yeah, hopefully you like the content. Well, I think it's a fantastic idea and a fantastic uh, podcast. So everyone should subscribe to that. I think it's going to be great. Um, you spoke to Melissa Barbieri on the episode two? Yeah, I spoke to Melissa on episode two. Um so she basically speaks about her career in a way. Um, we speak about the, I, I asked her to take me basically inside the female locker room. Um, and I was sort of more thinking around pregnancy, whether women, you know, we, speak, we spoke about men's dressing rooms, what are discussed. 
And I, I, want, I was curious to know whether pregnancy and contraception and all these things were something that are regularly discussed amongst the team, you know, like female athletes don't want to get pregnant or they do and they can't and, and all these sort of things. But, you know, she went into talking about uh, women's periods and menstrual cycles and body issues and all the things that happened in the change room, which I was um, very grateful for. And then after that, we went through her journey of um, trying to fall pregnant, um, surgeries and IVF. And uh, she ended up having seven ambulance rides to hospital through gallbladder attacks. One of these took place uh, at uh, HFB Park, I think it's called in, in Perth. She's gone to play against Perth Glory and she's had one of these gallbladder attacks and she's literally had to get an ambulance from the stadium before kickoff to go to hospital. Um, it's, you know, and these, as she's telling me these, and, and many of the stories, as I'm hearing them, I'm thinking to myself, how do I not know this? How does, how has no one written a story about it or anything? And yeah, I mean, they're the sort of things I'm trying to get out. So yeah, check it out if you want, if you don't want, no problems. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it's a super interesting uh, concept because I think sometimes we take for granted, we just think of uh, footballers uh, and all sports stars, but yeah. just as that, as footballers. Yeah. And oh, and we don't consider that maybe that other things off the pitch are affecting them. And, and it's yeah. not, you know, it's very rare, again, to, com to compare it to a normal workplace. Mm. You know, you can take stress leave. You can take yeah. that type of, whereas in sport, it's not as accessible, yeah. those type of things, or it's at least not culturally as accepted. So yeah. I, I think... I, I, it, uh, sorry to interrupt. There was no, no, um, no. What, the one next week is basically um, an AFL player who went through some stuff. But one of the key things that he he said, he was at the Carlton Football Club playing AFL, and he said no one at the club knew, and because he didn't he didn't feel like himself, he didn't want to be around the team. So whenever training would finish, he would leave straight away, and players would take the piss out of him. They'd say, "Oh, he's got to run home because he's under the thumb. His missus wants him home," and they had no idea what he was dealing with. So. You know, in a normal workplace, you might be able to just say, oh, listen, I need to take a few days off. And and in sport, you should be able to do that too. And there has been cases now where people do do that. But yeah, it is a, a completely different environment. Yeah, it's a fascinating topic. All right, guys, uh, let us get some more comments and questions uh, coming in. But I believe uh, someone earlier in the feed asked, mm. who is the best player you've ever played against? Yeah, so I answered this. It does change from time to time. It's sort of what mood I'm in, but... Uh, Lee Dong Guk, uh, the Korean striker, John Book Motors, played for the Korean national team. Uh, for me, he was the best player ever played against. I mean, I played against Harry Kane and I played against Olivia Giroud and all these, but they were they were just sort of friendlies and exhibitions. Someone I played against regularly, regularly was him. Um, and yeah, he always was super, super difficult. It, the problem with him, one, he was he's lethal. He, he's 40 years old. He's still scoring goals in the K-League now. He's lethal. He needs one chance and, and it's in the back of the net. And he's just so smart. He wasn't quick at all, but it was almost like he knew the second I took my eye off him when to make his move. It was time to perfection. And I remember against the, when I was playing for the Socceroos, um, I was marking him. A cross was about to come in and he made a, a move to the near post. I would have taken half a step and taken my eye off him for a few seconds and he just peeled to the back post. Ball went to him and just volleyed it straight in. Um, yeah, he was really, really good player and, and still is. Does it get easier the more you play against uh, like these players? Like do you, as a defender, do you work out their little you know, yeah. quirks and stuff? Yeah, definitely. Um, you obviously learn their, their strength and their weaknesses, what not to do and what to do. And 
you know, you can read all the match reports you want, but you still actually start seeing a movement and, and a player's pattern of where they like to make their runs and all that sort of stuff. Or, you know, if they like to drop off deep, whether it's better you go with him or, or not go with him. Most definitely. I mean, it comes with experience. And A-League players obviously play against each other quite a bit. So, um, you know, you start to see some good battles cancelling each other out. And obviously, uh, you know, when I look at the A-League, Alex Wilkinson, and he played in career as well. He's probably one of the defenders that more often than not gets the better of the striker. Yeah. Uh, Hassan Bertan wants to know, what's the best player that you've played with? Played with? Um, that's a good question. I'm actually terrible with these, these, these questions because I've got a shocking memory. Like even goals that I've scored, people are like, oh, remember how Ramsey whipped the ball into you? And I'm like, nah. Like, I, don't, <laughs> I honestly don't remember who passed it to me or, or anything. Best player I've ever played with. Um, I mean, like players like Lecky and, um, you know, Flores at Adelaide United were, were exceptional. Um, you know, look what Lecky's gone on and, and had a, an amazing career. Um, with the Socceroos and in, in, in Germany as well. Spent, what, 10 years now nearly in, in Germany in the Bundesliga. Um, but people might not look at him as the best player because he's not flamboyant. He's not like a skills and tricks and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, to be honest, I'm drawing a blank. Sorry, I'm on live TV. No, no, it's fair live enough. It's fair enough. <laughs> hey, listen, they're all better than I, I played with, that's for sure. Uh, so tomorrow I am going to speak to former Newcastle Jets player Joey Champness, now kind of known as Joeyck. Uh, he's released a song. I don't know if people know his story, but he's gone to America to become yeah. a rapper. He's released a song. I only released it a few days ago, maybe yeah. over the weekend. It's gotten 700,000 views on YouTube, which is pretty impressive. Wow. Um, I don't know if people have heard the uh, the song, but can you, yeah. us, can you give us a few bars? I cannot give you a few bars, but it's it's called My Plan. Uh, yeah. But it, you know, good on him for doing it. And uh, you know, if it's a cup of tea, great. If it's not, whatever. Yeah. Uh, but I'm going to speak to him about it. But I wanted to know: does anyone that you played with, and again, I'm asking you to recall one of these things. But with mm. any player that you played with fancied themselves as a good singer or a rapper or anything like that? Well, I'll have to say probably about 200 players I played with in Korea and Malaysia think they are good singers i don't know if anyone knows about the karaoke culture in those countries it is insane um even as team bonding in malaysia it would be like let's just go to a restaurant and players would just get up on stage one after another same in career as well even on the bus sometimes on the bus you'd have a player up the front singing karaoke on the way home from an away game so i'd have to say just about everyone that i played with in asia in in australia um I don't know, Jamo, um, just because you mentioned Joey Champness, Scott Jamison likes his, his, his hip-hop and, and things like that, and we used to listen to a fair bit of that on the, on the way to training in the old Adelaide United days. Um, but now current players, I mean, on social media, I've been seeing Mo Torre and Al Hassan Torre doing a lot of, lot of dancing and a few little raps as well. So they look like they got a little bit of talent with some of their friends. But, um, yeah, I, I must say, I did listen to Joey, Joey's music. I'm not a massive sort of hip-hop rap fan, but I thought it was brilliant. Honestly, I thought it was really catchy. Um, and I saw it when it had about 60,000 views, and I was like, geez, this is doing well. Because on like World Star Hip Hop page or something, which is yeah. like a big deal. Yeah. Um, so for him to have 700,000 views, um, man, good on him. And obviously, he feels as though he's made the right decision. I mean, I did kind of think he could be right now at the Jets on JobKeeper. And he's in LA, you know, partying <laughs> well, with those he was, girls. Um, 
in his film clip, he's got a Rolls Royce. I don't know if it's his. I wouldn't have thought so. Yeah, but I don't uh, think so. No, maybe <laughs> 700 million views he can get uh, Rolls Royce. I put the question out on Twitter. I asked, uh, I want to know which other A-League player do you want to hear release a song and what would it be called? So let us know on Facebook which uh, A-League player you want to hear make a song. What would it be called? Some of the answers uh, that came in. Uh, Anthony Hack had DJ Brock's. Former Waterboy would be the song. Uh, Daniel Beswick, Pedge Bowich, right back where I started from. Uh, ben Ross, Bruno Fornaroli, Shut Up Your Face remix. By the way, one of my all-time favorite moments, I don't know if you've ever seen this, Robbie, was when uh, Bruno Fornaroli finished his F- FFA Cup winning speech. I did see it. With just a massive F-bomb, a massive <laughs> F-bomb. And then he tried to say the next day that he was saying vamos. Yeah. Like, bro, it wasn't even yeah. close. <laughs> uh, it's one of, one of the greats. Yeah, but, yeah. Robbie, you are one of the greats. I really uh, want to thank you for joining us on TWG Live. Uh, everyone should go and subscribe uh, to uh, your podcast. You just search Robbie Cornthwaite on wherever you get your podcast and it will come up. It's a great podcast. Uh, episodes coming out all the time. Uh, make sure you subscribe to our podcast as well, SBS The World Game. Make sure you keep tuning in. Uh, we're going to have heaps of stuff, including a chat with Joey Champness tomorrow. Um, but yes, thank you to everyone, uh, all your comments. Uh, thanks to Robbie. Uh, thanks for everyone tuning in. And we will see you again next time, next week. Uh, and Lucy will be hosting, which obviously will be much more professional than this. But thanks again, Robbie. Thanks, mate. Pleasure. All right. Bye, everyone.